Welcome to Doctor Informed, the new podcast from the BMJ, created in collaboration with this institute and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed aims to take you beyond medical knowledge, to talk about all those bits of being a good doctor in hospital that you never really get taught. And today we're going to be talking about compassion and compassionate leadership. I'm Clara Monroe. I'm a general surgical registrar in the northeast of England and I work as a clinical editor at the BMJ. Last year I was the national, one of the National Medical Directors Clinical Fellows and I worked alongside one of my colleagues who is going to be joining me today. So Aisha, without further ado, I will let you introduce yourself. Hi everyone, my name's Aisha Ashmore. I'm one of the um, National Medical Directors Clinical Fellows as well as Clara's already mentioned and I was um, at an organisation called the Care Quality Commission last year but I'm also an obs and gynae trainee in the East Midlands and currently working in Leicester. I don't know if, do you know a lot about compassionate leadership Aisha, have you ever heard of it? I mean I think I've heard of it because we've talked about it as part of our fellowship but prior to that absolutely no knowledge whatsoever actually. Yeah, so I think I was probably quite similar. Um, I think when I was applying to the fellowship, I thought I should probably do a leadership course. Um, I think the only one that they had any space on that was relatively cheap was the one on compassionate leadership. Um, But it did change my view of what I think I thought compassionate leadership meant uh, because I sort of thought I would go and they would just tell me about how to be nicer. Um, And actually, I think the interesting thing, and I'm, you know, in the interviews that we listened to today, obviously the experts will talk on this a lot more articulately than me. Um, But I think being compassionate isn't just about being nice or being kind. Um, It's about doing that as an action. Um, And also sometimes that means telling people when they need to improve or when things aren't working, as well as telling them when things are good. Are there times where you particularly struggle to be compassionate to your either your senior colleagues or your junior colleagues? Yeah, I think whenever there's a mistake, it's and you're the one who has to fix the mistake. It's really tricky because, you know, your inherent kind of reaction is like, oh, God, um, I've got I've got to fix this. And it's adding to my workload and I've got multiple mm. other pressures on me um, that yeah. I need to sort out. But equally at the time, someone, you know, a junior colleague may have come to you like and it's taken a lot of like um, strength and um to for them to even admit to the fact that they made a mistake and um Mm. that they they need your help um and to admit to that is quite difficult and I think being able to realize that and then and then react in a way that is helpful compassionate and solves the problem um can sometimes be quite difficult when you've got a hundred other things that you need to be doing Mm, mm. Yeah, I was, I think, in both of the interviews, I talked to both experts about this because I definitely felt that um, I struggle the most to be compassionate when I'm really busy and there's loads of other things going on. And it's sort of carving out that time um, to act in a way that isn't frustrated or annoyed about stuff. Um, And just before I did the interviews, I'd been on call and it was like the, the, the fourth day on call, it was the end of the day and I'd done this consent form for an appendectomy three times and they the, the third time they called me to say they'd lost it I actually thought they were joking um because I was like surely you haven't lost the consent form three times like that's just not possible um so I went down there and I hadn't eaten and I hadn't 
had a pee and I was just like really grumpy and I was like surely you can't have lost this three times and then I immediately thought oh god I'm about to like interview somebody about compassionate leadership and I have been so anti-compassionate but I yeah I think I really struggled to see the woods from the trees when I'm like in the middle of doing five other things um, I don't know if you find the same. Oh, yeah, definitely. And especially in Ops and Guiney, when um, Labour Ward's busy, it can be really quite tricky. Um, and actually, this this isn't in a um, Labour Ward setting, but I remember there was this time where I had really, really messed up and I had to go and speak to my consultant, who was a brand new consultant, and it was the first time I'd met her, and say, I've really, really messed up. Mm. And I think... Um, because she was, she was the the lady was really really cross at me, and um, it it was interesting because that consultant really could have gone gone off on me because it was a mm. massive, it was gonna it was gonna take her at least forty five minutes to sort out this patient because because she was really cross. Um, and actually, I think I really learned from that just about you know, what I should do with my own behaviours when mm. I've got when I've got competing pressures and a and a junior who's really, really messed up and um mm. they need my help to fix it. So it it is interesting and I think I've changed as a result of my own mistakes. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's a huge amount of learning to be done, both in terms of like your clinical mistakes, but also when someone else you know when you've behaved in a way that you reflect on and think oh actually that was that was bad and I don't want to be that person that always behaves like that um and I think sometimes when we're doing these podcasts and we talk about um this sort of the unseen curriculum of like sort of becoming more senior as a hospital doctor or as a junior consultant I don't know what you think but I do feel like a some of that learning is not done in a classroom and it's not done formally but it's by seeing those really good examples of behavior um but it's kind of sometimes luck how many of them you come across um yeah like I totally agree and I think that's why culture is really important like having a culture which is conducive to learning and not blaming people when there are mm. mistakes um but also bringing the best out in people and developing mm. a, a team which really does work together is so important and I think that you know a lot of that does come from leading by example and mm. being able to show more junior colleagues you know best practice I guess so that they can they can continue promoting a culture where where people can be compassionate and it's not frowned upon and you know improvement actually happens yeah so it's really interesting you should say that and we're actually going to come back to that but um I think this is probably a good point to uh, bring in our first interview that interview with Michael West is coming up after this message from our sponsors At Medical Protection, we're different. With no financial caps or limits on the protection we offer members, we take a discretionary approach to providing assistance. This flexibility lets us help where other providers may not, treating cases on their individual merits and adapting to a wider range of situations. As a member-owned, not-for-profit organisation, we exist to support your professional interests and protect your finances, career and reputation. Our doctor-to-doctor support and advice can help you navigate the way, whatever lies ahead. Plus, the number of times you contact our helpline won't affect what you pay for protection. 
If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. Isn't it time to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at medicalprotection.org/uk. And back to my interview with Michael West. I'm a senior visiting fellow at the King's Fund and Professor of Organisational Psychology at Lancaster University. That's all the kind of formal title stuff. (laughs) Um, And I suppose my mission, if you like, a bit grandiose as a term, but is, is really seeking to create the conditions in our health services where we're able to deliver high quality, compassionate care and at the same time, ensure the well-being and the growth and the development and um, fulfilment of the staff who deliver that care in health and social care services. There's a, one, a fantastic review of hundreds of studies of compassion in healthcare. It's a book, unfortunately, I think called Compassionomics, but it's by um, <laughs> Treziak and Mazzarelli and two American medics. But it's a very, very good review of hundreds of studies, and it's just packed with the information about the links between compassion and patient outcomes, whether it's anaesthetists visiting patients prior to surgery and being compassionate in their interactions, having an effect on um, requirements for um, pain medication post-surgically and a much shorter length of hospital stay, whether it's patients with an early diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer being assigned to early palliative care and living significantly longer. The meta-analyses and RCTs show us just dramatic effects. But for me, some of the most convincing evidence is I had the privilege of designing the staff survey originally back in 2003 and uh, working on the implementation of it for some years. And we've had now 18 years worth of data, over half a million people respond every year to that survey. What we are able to do now is the most sophisticated statistical longitudinal analysis. And what it shows us is that where uh, leaders behave in those four ways that we've talked about, attending, understanding, empathizing, and helping, where staff in trusts report their leaders behave in those ways, subsequently what we see in those trusts is higher levels of staff satisfaction and staff engagement, that in turns associated with higher levels of patient satisfaction, uh, and, and that's associated also with significant improvements in care quality, in, in even financial performance, and in the acute sector, significantly lower levels of avoidable patient mortality, where staff generally and trusts report their leaders don't behave in those ways. We see staff much more dissatisfied, reporting chronic work overload, higher levels of stress, lower levels of patient satisfaction, worse care quality, worse financial performance, and higher levels of avoidable patient mortality. So the the empirical evidence is overwhelming and convincing Mm. about the the importance of creating compassionate cultures in our healthcare healthcare organisations. But why do you think that people lose compassion? Why do you think we don't show each other compassion? So a lot of work has been done by an amazing scholar and uh, researcher, Paul Gilbert, in the UK on human emotion regulation systems, particularly compassion. And and the the three emotional regulation systems are focused on threat, focused on resource acquisition, and focused on nurturing or compassion. And what he has 
I think very convincingly argued is that there's we've we we have an imbalance. So um, you know we're often much more focused on threat. One of the things that really struck me forcibly during the inquiry that Denise Coyer and I um, conducted, and the same in the in the inquiry into nurse and midwifery mental health and well-being, was how many people told us that they felt they operated in work cultures of fear and blame that often they were working in conditions which were incredibly difficult and they were really afraid of making a mistake. And they felt that if they made a mistake, that they would be uh, landed on very heavily by those above them or by um, senior leaders, by um, the GMC and, you know, even maybe prosecuted. So when you, when you operate in a context of fear and blame, then your threat emotional regulation system becomes dominant. We've also, I think, as a society, become very acquisitive and very focused on acquiring resources. And that, that's become that kind of, I, I don't know, maybe a, a focus on um, control and greed in that sense has, um, has suppressed the, the, the nurturing and the compassion. And over the years, We've seen many studies suggesting greater alienation in society. So I suppose what I'm saying is we've kind of, we've got out of kilter and there's something about re, um, reclaiming that part of us as humans, which is about connection and love and care and trust. And, and we see it in the way our organizations are run. I mean, the NHS has the biggest, most skilled, most motivated, most amazingly compassionate workforce in the whole of industry, yet we we're ma we manage them largely through command and control. It's absurd. It's absurd. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, the most effective organisations in the world have no more than three or four reporting levels. Yeah. In the NHS, in the typical trust, reporting levels are in double figures. And every time yeah. you add a reporting level, you add probably 10% to bureaucracy. Well, it's an absurdity. And, it, and what that command and control does is to um, suck away from the, some of the life from compassionate cultures. Mm. We know that there's more bullying and harassment and discrimination in command and control hierarchical cultures. So part of our transformation has to be um, towards more compassion, compassionate and collective team-based um, cultures in our health and care services. You've completely sold compassionate leadership to me all over again. <laughs> um, so in terms of sort of practically things that we can do, how in those moments when we're, you know, and I don't want to use the word burnout loosely, and I know you've done a lot of work with it, but when we start to get burnt out, you know, when we've been mm. working a lot and we're tired and we're frustrated, how do we find that compassion in us? Because that's the bit where I find it really, really hard to be compassionate. Mm. So I think the starting place, Clara, is, um, is, you know, the foundation for our ability to be compassionate to others is our ability to be compassionate towards ourselves. More profoundly, I think self-compassion is having the courage to be self-aware in the moment. So when you do feel irritated and you do feel fed up and you do feel angry, then it's about having the courage to recognize it and to accept it 
rather than beating myself up. Oh, I'm feeling irritated. I was supposed to be compassionate. Oh, I'm hopeless. I'm you know, not even beginning to get to first base with this compassion. It's about accepting feelings rather than just adding another layer of bad feeling on top of that. And then inquiring into it. Why am I feeling like this? Well, that consent form I've had to do three times and there's not enough staff. Um, so inquiring into it and then bringing a nurturing attitude towards ourselves. Ah, it's, of course, you, you know, I feel bad. Of course, I feel upset. It is frustrating. It is ridiculous. We don't have enough staff. It's really hard to do this stuff when we don't have the resources that we need. And, and to, to care for myself. Do you know, even actually I was reading a paper in communication in psycho uh, neuroendocrinology this week. You know, it's what you do when you. Um... <laughs> I was going to say, you just slipped that in there. I was just reading this really complicated paper. <laughs> <laughs> showing the effects of hugs on stress, but also showing. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, really powerful. They, they measured cortisol, heart rate and so on. So when people got a hug, then it has a significant impact reducing cortisol. But the really interesting thing is if you hug yourself in the absence of having somebody to hug for 10 or 15 seconds when you're feeling really bad, it has a significant effect on reducing cortisol and heart rate and um, self-rated stress as well. So, you know, the point of all of this is that when we connect deeply with ourselves in this way, in a caring way, we, 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 we're able to get beneath the flotsam and jetsam of anxieties, irritations, feeling inadequate, feeling overwhelmed, and to connect more deeply with the core values that give our lives meaning like compassion and wisdom and courage. And, and that then enables us to come from that place and connect more authentically, compassionately, deeply with all of those we provide care for, we work with, we interact with, um, in our work and in our lives generally. So I think I probably reflected on it during the interview, but um, the thing that I've thought a lot about since having that conversation with Michael um, was about th this whole idea of self-compassion. And I, I know that that's, I guess it does, it is kind of obvious, well, it should be obvious. And we always, you know, go and have your lunch because how can you look after patients if you haven't eaten, Aisha? Um, <laughs> <laughs> who famously said at the beginning of this call she hadn't had lunch. Um, but there, I think that that, I, I almost feel like I add that to my jobs list now as something that I realise is as important as, as the other stuff that I do. Um, because quite often I'll, I'll sort of be busy or I'll be doing something and I'll think, I don't feel good. <laughs> I don't really know why I don't feel good. I'm just irritable and I'm angry and I'm like not, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm doing a good job. And actually when I go through that like Maslow's hierarchy of needs in terms of have I eaten, have I slept, have I had a coffee, you know, the kind of, I guess in the way we think about it clinically, the reversible causes of me being in a bad mood, I try and reverse. Um, but I do have to go through that systematically because I think sometimes when you're in that moment, you you can't you, you can't work out why you're not being compassionate and why you're really annoyed and why you're being grumpy unless you go through it in that systematic way. Um, and maybe that's part of being an adult and maybe I should have come to it a lot earlier than you know, my early thirties, but, um, I think it has definitely changed the way that, 
um, personally and professionally, but more so professionally when there's a lot of other stuff going on. I think there's an element of doctors feeling like they need to be heroes as well, because a lot of, I think a lot of doctors, um, myself included, have this attitude that I need to be working constantly and all of my time and energy needs to be going into delivering patient care in some way or the other. And you do forget to look after yourself a bit. And, and, and that, and that's not just like the day to day, have I had lunch, but it's also like things like sick leave. So Mm. like a lot of people will be absolutely dying, um, with injuries or really unwell or, you know, really struggling with their mental health and they're still coming into work and, you know, they lose that kind of bandwidth to be compassionate because, you know, they feel that their duty is to be there. And, you know, it kind of comes back to this resilience thing. Like you have to look after yourself in order to be able to be a good doctor and and to be compassionate in not just the care that you deliver, but also in how you treat other people within your team and, you know, and deliver care. Yeah, I think that whole thing about resilience is so interesting, isn't it? Because I think in some places, resilience has got a bit of a bad reputation. And I I don't know if it's the same in obs and gynae, but I think in surgery, when people are in a department or, and this is personal experience, but I imagine will be echoed by other people, um, when they're in a department or a hospital where they aren't, you know, where there is a bad culture, they get sent away on resilience training. as the solution to that if they're not you know if they can raise an issue about the fact that there's a lot of bullying or something um but actually you know that's really taking away from something that's so important which is you build your resilience to the what michael refers to as the flotsam and jetsam of the everyday by you know for me it's like going on a really long walk at the weekend uh, and having nice food and seeing my family and seeing my friends and having like good quality time with them so that when I am back in work I'm not operating from sort of two percent of my battery. What did you think about um, what Michael said about the system and the way that the system kind of takes compassion out of what we do? Yeah I think I think that's so true I think the way that things are set up nowadays um doctors especially junior doctors rotate a lot um we don't get to develop the relationships with our teams you know we work with we work in so many different environments that we never really get to know anyone very well and I think that Mm. really detracts from a receiving compassionate kind of um not care but you know having um, compassionate interactions with people that we work with but also being able to be compassionate ourselves um, towards other people as well because mm. so for instance um you know in in obstetrics there's this whole business about um teams should train together teams who work together should train together and that's come out one of the out of one of the big reviews of maternity services from the Ockenden report but actually interesting um but actually we we work together and train together for at most a year and then we rotate Um, and within that period of time we probably only work with those certain team members occasionally because you know we all work these shifting patterns and rotors and we and we don't have a firm system anymore and I think that just lends itself to being a bit grumpier um not 
not wanting to call out things because you don't want to alienate yourself from a team who maybe do work together and you're just the kind of outsider mm. who's coming in for a day um and and it and it probably in in my opinion leads to these kind of team cultures which aren't very inclusive or promoting kind of learning and calling out problems and things yeah and I think what Michael said about threat was interesting in that sense because if you if you feel like you know if you feel like you're the outsider you're constantly going to feel like you're threatened aren't you so you're not going to feel comfortable enough to yeah you're not going to feel like you've got trust with the person that you're saying to why are we doing it that way or what's going on here or I think you kind of need to know somebody to know how to give them feedback sometimes especially like we've said before with kind of calling out things that maybe you're not familiar with or mm. is is maybe not the best way of going about something that's I think that's probably the hardest thing to do especially when you don't mm. know someone and everybody responds slightly differently like I had a brilliant consultant who used to say things to me like that's really rubbish and I know you can do better so do it again and I actually didn't mind that because I was like she's saying that because she knows that I can do this better and it was rubbish and actually she's right um and I found that really helpful um but then you know I spoke to another trainee who was like she's really mean she always says I can do better and I kind of said yeah but that if she thought you couldn't do better she wouldn't say that um but it, I think it's interesting how she didn't have as much of a relationship with this consultant the other trainee so you lose that like the gray areas a little bit more yeah definitely I had a situation recently where I was working with a consultant and I didn't uh, I mean newly qualified consultant really so I had known him as a registrar really but I'd known him more from coffee mm. rooms and lunch times and never really worked with him and we were doing this um, procedure together and I said, oh, can we actually do that? Because, you know, isn't it a consent issue? And I, like, challenged challenged that decision. And I think I, the only, even though I hadn't worked with him before, the only reason I felt like I could, I could do that was because we'd had that relationship in the coffee rooms and yeah. in lunchtime. And actually, you know, then we had a really good discussion about why it was the right decision. And, you know, it was it was more to do with my um, knowledge of um, the procedure and the consent implications um, rather than, you know, bad practice. But we were able to have that discussion and that conversation and actually better my training and, and the patient's care as a result of it. So, you know... It just it it just demonstrated to me to me that the absolute importance of being comfortable and knowing people, you know, from a more human level. Yes. So you've picked up on human connection. So I think this is probably a good point to bring in our second interview. Um. So I interviewed Bob Kleber, and he's going to talk to us about some of those issues. And that interview with Bob is coming up after this message for our listeners. <laughs> Some of life's most important questions are about health. And when people think about healthcare, they think about doctors, scans, tests and treatments. At Siemens Health and Ears, we think about those too. With about 70% of clinical decisions based on laboratory test results, staying on top of the latest advances in clinical chemistry is essential to providing the best care. This November, Siemens Health & Ears has free online educational sessions to help you learn about relevant advances in clinical diagnostics. 
Register for free today to explore sessions featuring new research and innovations in cardiac care, blood diseases, and AI, and create an agenda for live streaming events. Visit siemens-healthineers.com slash euromedlab or Google Siemens Healthineers Euromedlab. We pioneer breakthroughs in healthcare for everyone, everywhere. And back to my interview with Bob. My name's Bob Kleber. I'm a paediatrician, um, so a general paediatrician. I work at St Mary's um, in Paddington, which is part of Imperial College Healthcare. Um, I'm also, I have a role on the executive team at the Trust as the Director of Strategy, Research and Innovation. Um, I've been doing a lot of work for quite a long time around kindness and um, the importance of that in healthcare and really in the last sort of two and a half, three years have really put my foot on the pedal around it. I had a bit of a penny drop moment that just told me that I'd made a bit of a mistake. I'd been framing this as being something sort of soft and fluffy on the side and I realised actually it's the most important thing. Our business is care and kindness needs to be at the heart of it. So it's lovely to talk to you a little bit about that today. Great. Well, I'm really interested to hear uh, you talk more about kindness. Uh, And I'm sure we've all had those sort of day four on calls where we've all been at work sort of 15 hours a day and we're a bit sick of everyone and the same things are happening over and over again. It kind of feels like Groundhog Day and you're a bit fed up and you haven't eaten and uh, you haven't had a pee. And somebody does something really annoying and your immediate response is to be angry about it. Um, How could you in that situation, given all the other things going on, how could you approach that in a sort of a kind way, um, using kindness as an action? Yeah, and it's it's a great question that I don't have a brilliant answer. I think I think these things the first thing to say is this stuff is really hard. But you know what? All the best things are hard, aren't they? <laughs> and I think sometimes it, it it's played out as being, oh, this is really easy and we should all do it all the time. Look, we all you know, we all have a lot going on in our lives, in our work lives, in our home lives and that that, you know, the privilege of being a, a doctor and working in healthcare, whoever you are, whatever you do, um, it, it's a bit all encompassing and that's totally wonderful. I call it work-life blend rather than work-life balance. And, uh, you, you know, it, it, that's very real for people and you never know. You're talking to me and I'm talking to you and we've got no idea what's going on in each other's lives at the moment and what other pressures we're under. So I think go back to your specific scenario you know why is that person sort of doing something that's been a bit annoying or you felt is annoying or or irritating or or they're a bit angry and things quite often so we're trained diagnosticians aren't we We're really good at pulling out diagnosis but we sometimes in our human interactions with each other forget all those skills there's probably something going on with them. They're, I don't know, they're a bit confused or they're uncertain or they're feeling anxious about when they get something right. So the paradox is that even though you're exhausted and you've spent your four days and you're on the end of your night and you're still desperate for a pee, that's the moment to try and find that bit of extra kindness. And go back to the point about action. What do we really mean by this? So I would go for words like listening. So go and actually listen to somebody. Just pause, stop the crazy rushing around for 20 seconds and just go and sit with somebody. Get some good eye contact. You know, just slow it all down. Just 
you know, a lovely friend of mine talks about just checking in with people. Are you okay? Those sorts of things, those lovely human interactions actually make us all feel better around things. And the, the final thing I'd say on this is I, I miss those opportunities all the time. Okay, you get it wrong. And I think there's something about having a little bit of humility and a bit of generosity when you're sort of walking away and think, oh, I wasn't, I wasn't very, as quite as nice as I might have been there. When you next get the chance, just use a bit of those quite good communication skills we all have just to say, look, I'm really sorry, I couldn't stop to chat last time. And it's those little things, those little, this is human stuff. We're all people. We're all just people, all with our, you know, complex and wonderful lives going on. So just take it right back to that. Oh, yeah, I love that. I think just, you know, just taking time is something that we're really bad at. Like, we're generally quite good at it with patients, but I don't think we're that good at it with each other. Um, Why? Because this is a huge question, but why do you think, we've touched on a few of the reasons, why do you think people aren't kind? Why do you think that people aren't nice to each other? Yeah, you're right. It's a huge question. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. You know, how long have you got? Um, I, I think it's really complex. I think actually there are some quite simple things um, that are going on. Um, uh, the first thing is about something that I feel really strongly about and I feel somewhat complicit in. So I'm in my mid 40s. I've been uh, working in the NHS for, you know, 20, 25 years. And the the system that we work in and when I say the system I'm not sort of saying it's someone else's system I'm part of that and and I've got I'm a senior leader in the NHS I've got influence over it and it's really fundamentally unkind it's allowed a sort of gravitation of culture that has has really played a very poor set of cards over the last 10-15 years and I would name it as being leadership failure I think Mm. it has absolutely been a failure of leadership of our senior leaders over the last 10-15 years to get hold of that and just to be really clear I'm one of the you know (laughs) I I had some of those influence so but back to kicking around in my mid-40s I'm going to still be around for the next 20 odd years I'm absolutely not prepared to continue um, in leadership roles where, you know, I'm going to be absolutely maxing out every bit of influence that I've got around this agenda because it is the most important thing. And whether you're worried about how the NHS budget's going to go or whether you're worried about the quality of care or whether you're worried about inequalities, whether you're worried about life expectancy gaps, variation of care, safety issues, sustainability, take your pick what you're worried about around the future of healthcare absolutely at its heart is creating a kind health system where we're getting the very best out of the people the people who work in it the 1.3 1.4 million people who work in the nhs but actually all the families and visitors and relatives who are around our patients our you know our citizens our population we've we've got to find a a kinder society and a, a a kinder healthcare system and leadership is absolutely at the heart of it and everybody listening has got a leadership role in this so i'm afraid as well as saying i'm complicit in it you're all complicit in it as well we all are and it, this is about us you know in a way it's a bit of a movement to say look we're just not prepared to to, to tolerate it anymore so I have a my shift two or three years ago was to move from being a sort of gentle and enthusiastic advocate around this to being really hard-nosed about it really hard-nosed mm. it is the most important thing and I won't you know let, let me leave something hard for people to listen to 
you know, what are you prepared to walk past? Yeah, uh, it's so powerful hearing you say that and particularly the bit where you say I am complicit and I have made mistakes because when we've done other um when we've had done other interviews or had other discussions um, on this podcast, one of the things that comes up a lot is that medics in general were really bad at that vulnerability that says, I made a mistake or I did something wrong. Um, and I think that sometimes the kindness kind of gets pushed down because of that, because we don't want to say we've been unkind or we've been bad people because we all like to think of ourselves as being great because we're doctors. Um, I think what you've said about... Um, being better yourself and like what are you prepared to walk past is amazing how do you square that up with being in a system with people who aren't behaving like that especially you're more senior if you weren't more senior if you were you know the sho or the, the registrar on the team or um even a junior consultant and people around you are behaving in a different way do you just keep being kind or do you have to be kind in a slightly different way yeah, gr- listen. Great, qu- great questions. This is a, this is a, a, a tough old interview. Sorry. And a really good. One. No, no, no. Yeah. It's one. It's wonderful because we're trying to get under, you know. And thank you your your words about trying to be, sort of show some humility and show some vulnerability in this. These things are only useful to people. There's no point me standing on a box and preaching to people around stuff. That's utterly pointless. Um, there's, you know, there's loads I think about this stuff and grapple about it and. Con, you know, make countless mistakes around it. And I think there's something about, uh, in my introduction, I talked about a real obsession about learning and that I definitely have uh, um, on some of this stuff. So I'm going to just answer in two parts. I'll just describe a little bit about where I am now. But as you say, context, I've been around quite a while and, you know, I know quite a lot of people. And I, I'm in a senior role. But I think, you know, there may be the odd person listening who is in a senior role or you might get in a conversation with people. So, I, I recognise, in a sense, the the sphere of influence I have around that is wider than me when I was a junior doctor or me when I was a medical student around things. But we'll come back to what I think anyone and everyone can do. So I'm really, really tough in around this stuff. And I will um, essentially haul people in to go and sit down. So I will not walk past this stuff. And I don't care, I don't care two hoots how, who you are, how senior you think you are, whatever. We're all just people. So, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, hap- I'd tackle the prime minister on this. I'd go absolutely anywhere. I'm really serious because, again, go back. What are you prepared to walk past? And mm. I've got this really, that piece really clear in my head. But I totally accept I've spent a long time thinking about this stuff. I've spent a long time practicing it. I've, um, and I'm pretty senior and I'm male and I'm six foot three and I've got plenty of advantages. So there's a piece of me that says, look, if I can't start to doing that. And what I do with people in this thing is go and listen is try and be a diagnostician. And I, you know, I can think of one particular thing of a consultant colleague. It was a surgeon, Clara. I'm inferring nothing. Gosh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot believe you um, said that. <laughs> that. Exactly. Scandal here, live on the podcast. <laughs> um, and actually, it was really interesting. He was really, really defensive. So it was a whole load of unkind behaviours on email. And I put on a reply all email, which I don't do reply all very much, so about 35 people in on it, that said... 
this is neither kind nor helpful. Here's my telephone number. Oh, Give me a call. I love that. That's. I apparently I went a bit a bit viral on the uh, registrar WhatsApp group of <laughs> who is this guy? <laughs> what you know? Anyway, super sassy. So, but, so I got this. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure my teenage kids would call me that, but uh, I got this. Uh, I got this guy in to go and talk to him, and he was really defensive for about half an hour. Just look. We'll play the long game on this. I'm not in any rush. Um, and uh, and actually, after about half an hour, he just really opened up. And there was a heck of a lot going on in his life. And work was really difficult and stressful and things. And actually, when you take it at a wider piece, nobody had actually sat down and helped him out and listened. And, you know, and because he was a consultant surgeon, everyone expected him to be brilliant and amazing and get everything right and things. And of course, that's a, we're all just people. So I think... You know, almost always kind people, so unkindness comes from, uh, you know, people not being in a great place, people being difficult, people getting stuck, people not having the communication skills to get themselves out, all of these things. So go and listen, go and challenge that. Back to your second part of your question. You know, if you're the student nurse on a ward or you're in your first year, you know, you might be a foundation year doctor listening to this stuff. I think you've got to just calibrate this at the level, uh, not the hierarchical level that you're at, about where you feel you're, you're at and what you're able to do. So absolutely unrelentingly role modelling kind and positive behaviours, you can absolutely influence. And one of the things I always say to the medical students who have the privilege of tutoring and teaching is what I say to them, it's a sort of bit of a, so they look at me and go, what? So people are watching you all the time around how you behave, how you hold yourself, you know, do you smile at people? Do you open doors for people? Do you give them eye contact? Um, are you Are you just helpful you know do you go and get the folder out the door to look at the obs or whatever it's tiny little pathetic small things that are just kind and helpful and people are looking at you all the time so i think you can really influence that just by being a person on this basis that we're all just people and i think the challenging difficult behaviors is harder but the more we can do it and the more you can try and find a little bit of confidence to try and do stuff the better it gets and the more of us who can do that. And the final bit I just want to say, which is a leadership role, we might be leading the afternoon ward round or you know, there's moments in time where we're going and doing something. Just think about something for a moment is a key part of leading that ward round or that team brief in theatres or handover or those sorts of activities. There's a clinical content going on. But before that clinical content is a question is, how can I make this environment that we're in for the next five minutes, 10 minutes, half an hour, psychologically safe? How can I make it that anybody feels that they could interrupt it, that they could say, or I might have misunderstood something, or, oh, Bob, I think we might be giving the wrong medicine or whatever it is. And they, they might be wrong. How do you make it psychologically safe? And there's some really basic things about simple stuff, about checking people know each other, introductions and names, checking people have got a seat. You are just human basic things. They get this right in primary school and we've sort of cut it out in, in life in hospitals, life in GP practice, life in healthcare. So don't underestimate your influence. Every single one of us have got massive influence in the way we interact as human beings. And just grab that chance, what a privilege. You know, 
it's funny when he was talking about the little pathetic things. I just remember a time where I was, I was having a bad day, a really bad day, and I consulted. You know when you go into a room and you have to wear, like, a pinny and gloves and stuff? And my consultant <laughs> gave, took a pinny out and gave it to me first rather than putting it on themselves. And I practically burst into tears because I was like, that's so <laughs> nice of you. <laughs> Thank you for looking after me. Exactly, I know. It's just, and then, you know, at that point, you know, there's that meme of the, like, the, these leopards looking up their mum, like, I would fight for you. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's that was my reaction. I would die for my consultant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that it's, it, on one hand, it's really sad how much Stockholm Syndrome we have that getting a penny first makes you feel that powerful, like, I would die for you. <laughs> um but also like it is those things and you just think thank you so much for doing that because it's changed my it's gone from the bad day tm to being like the okay day and i can manage this on call yeah okay. and people are actually human beings <laughs> yeah totally because i think I, don't, I remember like having a lecture about like professionalism when i was at, a long time ago when i was at medical school and about your like professional identity and stuff. And I do think that although that is really important, that in that like professional identity, we lose a lot of what makes us human. Um, and actually, you know, you know, when consultants cry with their patients, sometimes people are like, oh, that's really weird. That's, you know, we shouldn't be doing that. We should have a professional identity. But I think in the same way that human connection, like if I was a patient and my consultant gave me some really bad news and got emotional, I wouldn't be like, oh, they're weak, they're terrible. I'd be like, oh, brilliant, they're a human. That That's who I want to look after me. Um, and I think it is really easily forgotten. And especially with like with names as well. So like mm. first this whole doctor or or Mr. slash Miss and um, all of those things versus just, you know, using first names. And I think like in obstetrics, um, there's been a real push to kind of flatten hierarchies and promote like mm. first names and things, which for me is actually really hard because I really struggle with calling my consultants. Um, yeah. Natasha or, you know, whatever, rather than, you know, doctor this, doctor that. Um, but it makes such a difference because it means that a you're able to have like normal conversations as human beings and as adults because I think as trainees we forget that we are actually you know adult human beings who have mortgages mm. and relationships and you know can drive <laughs> and aren't <What? laughs> and aren't children <laughs> which sometimes it can be we can be reduced to in the hospital settings yeah um, but also it just means that things just work better you you do have that psychological safety and and like particularly in theatres just you know knowing people's names in theatres to me is such a big deal and to the point where I'm now if I if I don't know anyone I'm um you know I'm I'm pretty much every time I walk into theatre will write everyone's name on the board because mm. because it makes the whole experience just so much nicer particularly in emergencies when you're just when you when people just respond better when you know their name I was um, like pleasantly, extremely surprised the other day when I um, had to go into had to go into Gyne Theatre, um, a rogue and foreign land. Um, but it's what happens if you two registrars and a consultant have tried to get a female catheter in and they can't. Um, <laughs> don't laugh at me. Uh, so off we went into theatre, and I was as soon as I walked in, the whole environment was really nice. And I was like, why does this environment feel better? Everyone on their scrub cap had their name written over the top of their their hat. And I was like, 
oh, hello, person I've never met who's called Tony. Can I ask you a favour? It changed the dynamic completely. And it's so simple and so straightforward. But I felt psychologically safe. And that's really what we should be aiming for, isn't it? Yeah. And I guess, like, the next time you see that gynae consultant as well, it would be better, like... So I had a complication um, a few weeks ago at, and um, I had to call urology. Uro- urology consultant came in and was like, hello, my name's this, and was really nice about it and like taught me through how to fix this complication. Um, and, you know, like two weeks later, I bumped into him in the theatre coffee room and, I, and he said hello to me and told me the outcome for this patient from, for the, from that complication. And my goodness, you know all of you know it just makes that whole interaction so much better I feel better the patient's fine and actually I feel like if this happened again I would I could I could in a more calm manner approach how to deal with this and know how Mm. to contact um this this lovely lovely consultant for help It, it was amazing so that's probably quite a nice place to end. Um, we have talked about, and Bob mentioned, psychological safety, um, which we will be talking about in one of our future episodes. Um, so if you're interested in listening to that and you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And we will look forward to speaking to you again next time. So in the spirit of compassion, um, I'd like to extend a massive thank you to Aisha for joining us today, um, especially because it's her day off and she didn't have lunch. Um, So thank you, Aisha. Thanks for having me, Clara. It was really fun. So I've been Clara Monroe and I will um, be speaking to you again next time. So thank you. Bye for now.